Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. All right, uh, welcome back to Behind the Knife, and today we're going to focus on uh, vascular for our absite review, and we're lucky enough to have uh, Nathan Aronson, who is a staff surgeon at uh, Virginia Mason University, come down to the podcast headquarters of Behind the Knife in Tacoma. So uh, thanks, Nate, for joining us, and welcome. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So he's going to lead us through some uh, vascular surgery absite. He dominated the absite while a resident at USC, and then went on to train in vascular surgery at MGH, and is now moved out to Seattle to start his career, what, about a year or two ago? Yes, uh, last August. Great, great. So, Absite and boards are still fresh on his mind. Very fresh. And uh, we're happy to have him. So, let's uh, dive right in. And just a warning to listeners, none of this is intended to um, explain the breadth and depth of vascular surgery, but really just to highlight the important points that are testable on, on the ab site. So um, here we go. All right. Uh, the beauty of vascular surgery is that it exists all over the body. It's a systemic disease. Uh, comes in multiple forms, whether it's aneurysmal degeneration or um, bleeding, thrombosis, atherosclerotic disease, etc. So I guess we'll start by talking about uh, carotid disease, uh, which is prevalent in the elderly Americans that we have. So um, who are these people uh, that we should be screening for carotid disease? So for carotid disease, um, any patient over 70 years old with uh, other atherosclerotic risk factors, such as um, a cardiac history, um, smokers, um, peripheral vascular disease, any history of a stroke or TIA um, would be the highest on my list. And of course, any patient that's had a brewery kind of on exam would be some of the people I'd be concerned about screening. Absolutely. Uh, most studies uh, would indicate that about 10 to 15% of patients who have a brewery actually have significant carotid disease, but anybody who has a brewery would definitely warrant a carotid duplex ultrasound. Um, otherwise, certainly anybody who's had TIAs or who has had a stroke should be screened with respect to their carotid disease, even though it's only about 20% of all strokes which are caused by carotid disease. So how do we, how do we screen these patients? So generally, it's a duplex ultrasound is the first uh, step in screening patients. Absolutely. And what are we looking for on these, these ultrasounds? So the indications have been changing slightly throughout time, um, but we're looking for high velocities um, indicating uh, stenosis, um, generally above 60% for symptomatic disease and above approximately 80% for asymptomatic disease are some of the guidelines I've most recently read. That's correct, and uh, most people go by the uh, NASET criteria, um, which uh, was developed uh, to, to provide a standardized assessment of people's carotid disease, and we're looking at a peak systolic velocity in the ICA over 230, uh, which is the most sensitive predictor of significant carotid disease. So now, uh, let's say you, f you have a patient, they're in clinic, they have a brewery, now they have a peak systolic velocity of 250, and uh, uh, they're smoking, they're not on an aspirin, they're not on a statin. What are you What are you going to tell them? Are you going to tell them they need an operation? Uh, so 
with the medical management has gotten uh, so much better um, in the past 20 years since these trials came out that it's thought that uh, patients on a statin and an aspirin and stop smoking can manage a large amount of the carotid disease if they're asymptomatic beforehand. That's right. So a lot of vascular disease or the treatment of vascular disease is non-interventional at first. It's lifestyle modification, smoking cessation, walking programs, uh, initiation of statin, aspirin, beta blocker, controlling your diabetes, etc. So let's say the patient now comes back to you. They've taken care of all these things and they come back two months later, but now they're having a transient monocular vision loss in their ipsilateral eye. Uh, then this patient has uh, switched from the category of asymptomatic to symptomatic disease, um, which has a much more aggressive approach to treatment. That's right. So what would you, if this patient's in your office, what would you recommend to them? Um, you know, if they haven't had a history of radiation to the neck, um, previous uh, neck dissections, um, and, and otherwise a good operative candidate, such as their um, ejection fraction and their heart is okay, I would offer them a, a carotid endarterectomy. That's right. About 90% of all carotid endarterectomies are done in asymptomatic patients, and about 90% of all carotid interventions are carotid endarterectomy. Um, this is a bit of tiger country in the neck uh, uh, to perform a carotid endarterectomy. What are, the, uh, what are the structures we're worried about injuring? Maybe we identify them beforehand, or maybe we just stay out of harm's way. Yeah. Um, so... There, there is uh, numerous nerves. The, the ones that we talk about mainly in the um, carotid sheath, you have the vagus nerve um, that lies um, just um, in between the internal jugular and carotid, which is easily um, identified during the surgery. Um, more superiorly, um, you have, and of, of great concern, is the hypoglossal, um, just superior to the bifurcation um, that you can injure um, and cause a a defect in their ability to use their tongue. And then um, you have your glossopharyngeal and your cervicalis are some other important nerves. That's right. And this is uh, the type of question that's asked on the ab site. Uh, these anatomic questions, also what these, what the deficit is with injury to these nerves or what is the most common nerve that's injured. And uh, the nerves that I usually tell my patients about are the, the, the vagus nerve, which injury to the vagus nerve can cause hoarseness. Um, the um, marginal mandibular branch of the facial nerve, which extends along the angle of the mandible and can be injured with uh, traction injury. It's a, it's a branch of the uh, facial nerve and can cause some ipsilateral mouth drooping. And um, <clears throat> then uh, obviously the glossopharyngeal nerve is one of the nerves that would be the most disastrous to injure because it would lead to uh, oropharyngeal dysfunction. The patient may need a tracheostomy, peg tube, and then obviously the hypoglossal nerve, which would cause ipsilateral tongue um, paralysis. In, in your experience, have you seen um, transient hypoglossal uh, kind of stunning of the nerve that resolves with a week of follow-up or something? Absolutely. Probably the most common nerve that gets injured transiently is the marginal mandibular branch of the facial nerve. And it's uh, the one that we hear about a lot because in the PACU, the nurse will call you and say, the patient's uh, mouth is asymmetric or their smile's asymmetric, we think they're having a stroke. And obviously that raises the blood pressure of the surgeon and they run down and they see the patient and they're oftentimes quite relieved to see that it's only a you know, marginal mandibular nerve traction palsy. And most of this, about 90% will resolve in a month, even upwards of a year. And that's what I tell uh, any patients that have this. Certainly the same goes true for the hypoglossal uh, nerve, uh, oftentimes traction, traction stunning or injury, and it does resolve. 
in the thought on the marginal mandibular is you know if you're if i'm right it's a it's like a higher lesion that you're having the intern retract uh the army navy or whatnot to expose it and that's kind of what causes i've seen a question like this either my question banks or Mm -hmm. something so is that the thought that's absolutely true so it, it exists on kind of the angle of the mandible and the teaching in or at least the teaching that i had in fellowship was that you should not be retracting on the angle of the mandible but the soft tissues above or retracting retracting on the uh, digastric muscle up in the neck instead great so let me ask you this say you're we're in the middle of this carotid endorectomy we're dissecting out the bulb and all of a sudden the anesthesiologist tells you uh now the patient's uh, uh, heart rates in the 40s now the 30s now their blood pressure's dropping what do you think's going on and what do you think we can do for that at the carotid uh, bulb, you have the carotid body, which actually um, has parasympathetic tone, um, which can be activated by operating in that area, and um, which will cause um, bradycardia. And this is not an infrequent phenomenon, like a lot of the phenomena we talk on the ab site. Um, this one um, happens quite frequently. So uh, generally, you want to have uh, like 1% lidocaine uh, up on the table, and you can inject uh, the carotid body um, to help um, resolve this bradycardia. That's exactly correct. And it's pretty amazing when, uh, it resolves itself with the, with the lidocaine. So, okay, now we're, we're ready to clamp. We've got a blood pressure ready for clamping. How do we know if the patient has uh, enough uh, flow from their vertebral circulation or their contralateral carotid circulation? Is there something we should, we should be doing ahead of time or at the time of, uh, planning to clamp? In my experience, it's, it's largely surgeon preference of whether to shunt or not to shunt. Um, if you decide not to shunt, um, there's a few ways that you can um, assure that um, you're not causing ischemia to the brain. Um, some people will do the operation awake um, and have the patient respond um, with a local block to the neck. Um, others will use stump pressures to make sure. Um, I think it's stump pressure greater than 40, um, which is uh, will help you feel confident that you're not going to cause ischemia. And then there's different uh, neuromonitors um, or ultrasounds. I'm not exactly sure that you can use to monitor blood flow during the case. Mm-hmm. And this is a question that's asked on the ab site. They'll usually say, what's the most sensitive indicator of uh, cerebral perfusion during carotid endorectomy? And the answer is do it awake because then the patient's squeezing a, a squeaky toy or talking to you. Uh, that's difficult to do both because of uh, patient anxiety and and uh, pain control, but it's done commonly. Otherwise, follow the patient with an EEG, stump pressures. Some people just clamp and go and have written papers of the successes of that. Um, what do you choose to do? Uh, EEG monitoring oh, so with you, selective shunting. Really? Yes. Selective shunting, okay. So only about 10 or so percent of patients will have um, basically incomplete perfusion or will have an EEG change and will need to be shunted. Do you have to have a neurologist there to read the EEGs, or how does that work? No, there's an, e, there's an EEG tech, and they're in communication directly with a neurologist who probably sits in a room with multiple different computer screens of EEGs that they're following, and they'll communicate directly to say there's a transient change or not. So to wrap up carotid disease, I've seen a few questions about um, the differences in flow on the Dopplers of the internal carotid versus the external carotid. Uh, how do you keep this straight, Nate? The... Uh, External carotid uh, flows into a high-resistance arterial bed in the face, and so it'll be more of a peripheral artery or similar to a peripheral artery with a triphasic flow. So um, that's what you listen for with the Doppler, Uh, whereas the internal carotid artery has to have continual flow to the brain because the brain obviously needs 
this continual flow to prevent you from passing out with every heartbeat and it's a low resistance bed so you actually have a continuous diastolic flow and it's biphasic great and that wraps up carotid disease we just want to cover a few quick points on aortic dissections uh, for the absite you really just need to know uh, the Stanford classification, which has class A, which is any ascending aortic involvement, and then there's class B, which is uh, descending aortic involvement only, so distal to the subclavian. Uh, the one, the patients you want to be uh, look for these in are patients that um, are severely hypertensive, and a lot of times these patients uh, can be drug users, specifically cocaine abusers, have a much higher risk for this. Additionally, uh, Marfan's. Um, also are high risk for this. And they'll ge generally have kind of a crushing chest pain similar uh, to a heart attack that radiates to the back. So any type A dissection requires uh, CT surgery reconstruction of their uh, aortic arch and replacement of it. Um, for type B uh, aortic dissection, many of them can be managed uh, medically and if there is no complications such as end-organ ischemia, whether the end organ is the kidneys or the bowel or the lower extremities. Um, if there is none of this, um, many of them can be managed with just medical management. So, John, uh, one thing that they commonly ask is uh, on the website is, you have a type B dissection. Uh, what medications do you want to have these patients on to help prevent uh, propagation of that dissection? Uh, so you want to control the blood pressure mostly with IV beta blockers. Uh, Esmolol drip is the most most common, uh, and then also nipride as well. Nipride uh, reduces the afterload, and the the beta blockers um, help with the impulse reduction to um, help prevent um, propagation. And the other thing uh, that could happen, kind of on the basic science side, is that the dissections happen in the medial layer of the blood vessel wall, and then. John, one last question on aortic dissections. What, when you repair these with a thoracic endograft, if you're repairing these, what are your most common complications going to be, or the, the most feared complication, I should say, of a thoracic endograft? Uh, so the most feared complication is paraplegia, uh, but you can also have uh, myocardial infarction as well as renal failure that result from that. What do we do to minimize the risk of paraplegia? Uh, so you can place a, a lumbar drain um, keep their um, blood pressure um, above a certain level uh, are the two most common ways. Generally keep them in the ICU and then um, keep a close eye on the lumbar pressures. That's right. What's the most dangerous, uh, I guess, real estate territory in the aorta to cover, I guess, on the spinal level? The artery of a dam coit, because um, that is what supplies the blood from the aorta to the, the spine. Yeah, our favorite artery of a dam coit. That's right. And it usually exists in kind of the T8 to L1 level. So any coverage in that realm is considered high real estate and should have a spinal drain. All right, and we'll move on to the next commonly tested topic, aneurysms. So what's the uh, risk factor for aneurysm formation, abdominal aortic aneurysm we're talking about? Thankfully in vascular, there's a common theme of uh, patients with hyperlipidemia, smokers, hypertension, um, and old age would um, be the most common indications, not mm -hmm. indications, but risk factors. And the most potent risk factor is actually family history of uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm. Now, uh, when these are usually identified incidentally, uh, who are we re uh, recommending repair for? Uh, so uh, when you recommend for repair, first the first question should probably be, is it asymptomatic or is, is it symptomatic? For asymptomatic uh, patients, uh, generally, uh, 
we're looking at patients who uh, are larger than 5.5 centimeters for males, a little bit smaller for females at about five. And then we look at the growth. So uh, during surveillance, if it grows uh, generally somewhere over a period of a centimeter per year uh, growth rate, those would somebody are people who should be referred for elective repair. That's right. And this is a disease of the media. So let's say you have a 75-year-old gentleman who's got a six-centimeter inferior abdominal aortic aneurysm. How are you going to fix him? His aneurysm met the criteria for an EVAR. Uh, I would offer him an EVAR as a first-line repair, as it's been shown to be uh, superior um, in the in the short term, at least. So the kind of anatomic criteria that are important to know um, to different to make a patient qualify for an endovascular repair is they have to have an adequate neck length both below the renals um, and kind of before or after the hypogastric. So you need at least 15 millimeters of a landing zone, both proximally and distally. Uh, the neck diameter uh, it has to be at the um, infrarenal has to be less than 30 millimeters. Otherwise, you won't be able to seal the graft and you'll get an endoleak like we'll talk about in a second. Uh, and you can't have too much of an angulation. Uh, generally, 60 degrees is the cutoff for that. Um, and then your iliac arteries, they can't be too small and they can't be too big. Uh, so they can't be under eight millimeters. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to get your devices up. Um, and they can't be greater than 18 millimeters because then you're dealing with aneurysmal iliacs. And there's way to, ways to deal with that. But for the abscite, they um, do not qualify for an endovascular repair. Okay. So let's say you put in an off-the-shelf standard EVAR. And at the end of the case, you have an endoleak. Jason, what are the types of endoleak and which ones do we have to fix before we leave the operating room? All right, so there's five types of endoleak. Uh, so type 1 endoleak is broken up into type 1A and type 1B. And so these are leaking at the either the proximal or the distal uh, landing zones, respectively. A type 2 endoleak is a retrograde flow um, from, uh, from lumbar or intercostal uh, branches uh, of the aorta into the aneurysmal sac. Uh, type 3 uh, involves uh, structural failure of the graft or, or leakage between components of the graft. And then a type 4 is, is leakage through the graft due to graft porosity. Uh, and then there's a type 5, which is kind of the mysterious uh, endotension, which uh, if anybody can under explain to me to where I can understand it, I would much appreciate it. As far as the ones you have to, you have to, you have to fix, uh, specifically, you know, right before you leave the operating room, certainly any type of graft um, uh, structural failure, so the type 3 endoleaks where there's leakage between components, components and a type one where there's a leakage uh, either at the proximal or the distal landing zone those need to be addressed with either ballooning up the graft or placing you know um, further components proximally or distally uh, the uh, type you know small type two endoleaks can be observed that's right one of the things that the absite loves to ask is uh, post-operative complications of aneurysm repair so they'll ask what's the most common reason these patients die in the hospital yeah and this both applies to carotid disease also i've seen this same and the answer is the same for both of them um, after carotid interdectomy but the reason these patients die in the hospital is a heart attack they have a myocardial infarction and you can remember that because these patients are generally high risk and you put them under a large operation that's a lot of stress they, they're at a high risk for a, a heart attack that's right and one of the other topics regarding aneurysm that they like to ask it's usually a patient post-op day one in the icu passes blood per rectum yeah, this is a, uh, you know, the feared situation of all uh, aortic repairs uh, of colonic ischemia. Um, and the thing you really have to differentiate in the question is whether they're telling you that you have a sick septic patient with concerns for frank ischemia versus um, uh, 
So you generally want to get a sigmoidoscopy on these patients. Uh, you want to start them on fluid resuscitation, antibiotics, um, and then you want to get a sigmoidoscopy to determine the um, if it's frank necrosis versus just some mild ischemia that might be able to be improved with resuscitation. So if, if the patient isn't... Um, you know, crashing in front of you or peritoneal, you can likely um, treat this with fluid resuscitation and uh, antibiotics. But if they downtrend or they get worse, you're going to have to do a colectomy on these patients. That's right. And now evaluating a patient with an abdominal aortic aneurysm, is there anywhere else we should be looking to see if they have an aneurysm? Uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a, so as we kind of hinted at, you know, these things run in families. So people who are at risk at uh, for abdominal a- aortic aneurysms are at risk for aneurysms at other places, specifically uh, peripheral uh, aneurysms. So popliteal aneurysms, I think, has an fifty percent association rate lower than that. It's a vice versa. So that if the patient has a popliteal that's or what it aneurysm, is. they have fifty percent chance that's of having a triple A. I knew fifty percent was in there somewhere. Okay. And who who are we fixing with respect to a popliteal artery aneurysm? So uh, with popliteal aneurysms, uh, they have kind of a different nature of disease. They, they're not as high risk for rupture, but what they do cause problems with is thrombosis and uh, emboli um, to the distal extremity. Uh, so generally, the um, indications are if either of those things happen, it would be an indication of repair. And then also, if it's greater than two centimeters. Yeah, or with thrombus inside of it. Or with thrombus, Okay. And then uh, what is your kind of criteria for, uh, for iliac aneurysms uh, size-wise that you consider treating or would you consider treating on the ab site? Well, I think at the time of repair for an abdominal aortic aneurysm, anybody who has an uh, iliac aneurysm greater than three centimeters warrants repair. But overall, people say three and a half or four for just standard isolated iliac aneurysms. They have a much uh, higher lethality when they do rupture, mostly because the uh, operative exposure is much more difficult. You can imagine down in a male pelvis uh, trying to get control of uh, uh, ruptured iliac arteries is no fun. Uh, just to, so, just to return quickly to the popliteal aneurysms, I know I've seen on the outside in the past. You know, they'll ask you how you're going to repair it if you're going to repair it, and there'll be a number of things listed: either interposition graft or exclusion and bypass or stenting endovascularly. I know historically the, the, the answer has never been to stent because of the they'll get kinked behind the knee, and it's not really amenable to stenting and excluding an aneurysm that way. But I understand there's there's some new ways of treating this, and I was just wondering. You're not under oath or anything, or nobody's going to promise nobody's going to sue you. But how would you answer this question on the ab side if, if you got it? You're right. It is a bit of a moving target with respect to endovascular therapy of popliteal artery aneurysms. I would say if it's a small aneurysm with no mass effect, I would approach it medially with exclusion and bypass using a saphenous vein. Uh, if it's a large aneurysm which is causing mass effect, I'd approach it posteriorly um, in order to get the aneurysm to. Um, basically shrink down or help it shrink down. Uh, treatment with uh, stent grafts, mainly the uh, Gore Viabon is a stent graft that people are using in the popliteal space because of its flexibility. And uh, there are papers out there that show that it has uh, good success, although the feared complication is that you get thr- acute thrombosis and limb loss secondary to your procedure. Yeah, that might still be a little... Um, uh, uh, controversial. So I think on the ab site, uh, I would probably still be hesitant to put any endovascular repair for those popliteal aneurysms. Exclusion and bypass. So just a few uh, quick highlight points that I've seen also for uh, aortic questions. Uh, Jason, you have a guy that's had a open aortic aneurysm. Have you even seen this ask for an, on a question bank, not the ab site, but 
for even after an EVAR repair, but uh, comes in and has a hematemesis uh, six months after an EVAR. Um, but, you know, that resolved in the ER and he looks great now. Um, are, are you concerned about anything in this guy or is it just a little gastric bleed that he had? Yeah, so I think this is the much described, rarely seen aeroenteric fistula. Um, so that would be the the herald bleed that you would that would be presenting with that uh, hematemesis. That's right, and it's more more often seen with open repair uh, along the suture line. We do close the sac over the aneurysm, but what what uh, intestinal structure lies right over this anastomotic line? So that'd be with the uh, in communication with the duodenum. That's right. And these patients present in one of two ways. You mentioned one with the herald bleed. How else can they present? So, so they can uh, actually just become septic um, from this breakdown of their duodenum into their aorta. That's right. And I, it's actually a question that was asked of me on my general surgery oral boards, uh, basically a scenario of a patient who had an aortoenteric fistula. And now, how are we going to fix this? So one thing to just keep in mind, uh, any infected aortic graft of any sort on the ab site you're going to do in uh, generally an axillary to femoral bypass um and yeah so you're going to cut out the graft get source control and you're going to so long uh ptfe right um from their axilla to their femoral and then you can do a femoral femoral bypass uh would be kind of the, the go-to repair that's right and then you debride the aorta remove the graft stuff some momentum into the dead space close the duodenum if you need to and uh, hope for the best in these patients who have a high mortality rate. And then uh, what are the two Jason uh, bugs that you see um, in infected aneurysms? So in, are you, are you speaking about mycotic aneurysms or are you talking about infected grafts? Just cover both. Okay. So for mycotic aneurysms, uh, you know, the, the, uh, I think the most popular, most famous one is salmonella, but it's actually become uh, not the most common that's found. So it's still staph that's most common in mycotic aneurysms. But your top two are staphylococcus and salmonella. Uh, and then for infected uh, aortic grafts, so any type of you know infected material, infected graft, it's you know staph epi is the most common uh, because of its excretion of that bile film. Um, and then for E. coli is also very common for engraft, uh, infected aortic grafts. Well, that's perfect because I generally choose staph for almost every answer, anyways. Another prevalent vascular disease is uh, peripheral arterial disease. So um, this comes in ranges of severity, uh, but let's say. Another 75-year-old smoking gentleman comes in saying, Doc, I can only walk two blocks before I get this terrible pain in my calf. What do you, what do you think is going on with him? Right. So uh, the concern would be, uh, you know, in this patient with high risk factors that he has uh, claudication from peripheral arterial disease. And uh, if it's reproducible pain at a, a specific distance like that and isolated to the back of his calves, it, it, it's high likelihood that it is um, claudication. And in these patients, there's all, the absite question um, that I've seen in the question banks, at least, is that uh, you want want to start them off a lot of these people can get better with medical management so you you know they stop smoking get on a statin um if they're not on aspirin already they probably require an aspirin and then uh, an exercise program where they kind of walk to their point of where it hurts and walk a few steps past that and kind of keep pushing um on a, a daily or uh ba- daily or every other day basis to help and a lot of these patients will improve um and then the other question i've kind of seen involving this is what percent of these patients that present with claudication end up needing amputation? Um, and, you know, at least 
it's a very small number. A lot of these patients met with medical management. It's like as low as 5% will end up. That's um, right. 5% at five years. That's what I tell my patients. A lot of them come in and they are nervous that they're going to develop gangrene or they're going to need an amputation. But I assure them that that won't happen. But in order for them to improve their walking distance, they're going to have to work at it. Either weight loss, smoking cessation, medical optimization, and a walking program. And so generally we get ABIs in these patients, uh, but Jason, when are uh, ABIs not as reliable? So, so anything that affects the compliance of the, of the vasculature. So it's classically diabetic patients, um, bad diabetics, the ABIs are, are less reliable. Why is that? Uh, it's because of the uh, calcification and hardening of the of the arteries, and and they just uh, the, it makes the compression of the vessel uh, they lose compliance, so it makes the compression uh, during the ABI um, uh, inaccurate. That's right. Usually, patients who have diabetes, chronic kidney disease, obese folks, and people with a lot of leg edema are very difficult to obtain reliable ABIs. And so, these patients, you'll generally get toe pressures on. And so when you are getting these ABIs in these patients uh, that do not have diabetes, you'll generally start to be concerned um, for intervention. Uh, it's, it's patients that have critical ischemia, and critical ischemia constitutes a patient that has rest pain, a patient that has uh, tissue loss or gangrene. So when they're less than 0.4 is when you're going to start getting uh, patients that you'd be concerned about critical ischemia or their toe pressure is less than 30. Um, so those are the patients that uh, require intervention in a, a peripheral arterial disease. These patients are very sick. These patients are, uh, half of them will be dead in five years. Um, about 30% of them will lose a limb within uh, about a year. Um, so it's a very challenging patient population to take care of. What about the, um, the anatomic distribution of disease based on patients' comorbidities? Are, are there differences between people who smoke or have diabetes, et cetera? Uh, so yeah, you see a, a little bit of a variation in the distribution of disease between you know classically smokers versus the diabetic. You know, the smokers a lot of times will have are, are classically have more proximal disease, so you know iliofemoral disease and calcifications, atherosclerosis. Whereas your diabetics, it, it kind of makes sense. Diabetes is a is a microvascular disease, so they tend to have more distal, you know, kind of below knee uh, type of uh, disease patterns. And that leads into the next. Uh classic question that you hear um, in vascular rounds is how to determine the level of disease that patients have um, and what just based on their symptomology. So um, generally what they say is it's a one level above where they have uh, pain or problems. Um, so if they have calf pain, it's generally SFA disease. If they have thigh um, pain, you're looking more to the uh, common femorals or external iliacs. And then if they're having buttock claudication, you'll look towards the uh, common iliacs or aortic disease. Uh, so Jason, what is uh, Lariche syndrome? So Lurie's syndrome is a constellation of findings where, where patients have uh, essentially no, you know, no femoral pulses. They have buttock thigh claudication. Uh, they frequently have, imp or they do have impotence uh, from decreased flow, uh, decreased flow to the internal iliac arteries. Uh, and this is associated with um, you know, lesions at the uh, aortic uh, bifurcation or above. Uh, typically, these patients will require um, a, a bypass, aorto-bifemoral uh, bypass uh, graft. 
I saw one of the score questions yesterday regarding these aorta bifem um, graphs, and I, I definitely missed this question. It was asking, at what part of the common femoral artery do you want to sew in your bypass graft? Um, and to spare everyone the pain, I'll just answer it. Uh, so they, they recommend, so it's like, do you want to sew it into the proximal common femoral, the mid common femoral, or um, where the profunda and the SFA take off? And you want to sew, according to this question at least, and to the where the SFA and the profunda take off, because then you have the, the least chance of having a stenosis um, at the level sewing in kind of at the distal common femoral. That's right. And it's actually the profunda, which tends to stay open in these patients long-term, and that provides the perfusion for the limbs uh, going forward. Okay, so let's say you've done a uh, femoral to tibial bypass in a patient, and you're uh, surveilling this bypass, but uh, the bypass goes down in, let's say, a week after surgery. What, what usually caused that? Uh, so the, most, the easiest way to remember this is if it's less than 30 days, it's usually due to a technical error uh, in the graph itself. Yeah, either the anastomosis uh, technically wasn't put together correctly or the vein was no good to begin with. Uh, let's say it uh, looks good at a month, but at six months it's now uh, got high velocities in the graft or it's thrombosed completely. Uh, so this would fall in the category of an intermediate uh, bypass graft failure. Uh, which usually runs from greater than 30 days and we're up to two years. Uh, and that's usually due to intimal hyperplasia at the anastomotic site uh, or valve sites within the graft. What about a patient comes back five years after bypass with uh, recurrent claudication? So this would be considered a late bypass graft failure since it's greater than one to two years. And this is always due to progression of atherosclerotic disease uh, within the inflow or alpha vessels. All right, the next patient's a 65-year-old gentleman with diabetes. Now, chronic kidney disease, stage 5, his nephrologist refers him to you to discuss fistula or dialysis options. What are his options? Uh, so you have the preferred is the fistula placement, um, <clears throat> or you have a peritoneal dialysis options that you can offer them. Um, we won't really get into peritoneal dialysis in this discussion, but um, for fistula access, you generally get a vein mapping of their arm, and you want to find, um, I think the kind of target number is three um, millimeters is the size of vein that you need um, to make a autologous graph that has a high func high chance of maturing um, and so you generally want to start distally so I think they say radiocephalic I mean some people will do the snuff box type of things but more more practically the radiocephalic um, and then a, like a brachiocephalic are your kind of go-to first uh, fistulas if you have adequate uh, vein size which like we said is three millimeters um, so that's what I would talk to them about and I'd get a vein mapping and uh, hopefully plan for a fistula placement. What's something you can do to assess them on exam to, you know, ensure that they don't have steel or are not at risk for steel postoperatively? So classically, uh, we do the Allen's test, um, and it's where we, um, you know, evacuate their hand of any blood and then release the ulnar artery to see if it has perfusion of the hand, adequate perfusion, and then release the radial artery. And what's usually the dominant blood flow to the hand? Uh, generally, it should be the ulnar artery. About 85% of people are perfused through their ulnar dominantly to their hand. So uh, they shouldn't have problems with a radiocephalic fistula, but some people do. Uh, okay, let, so let's say you go ahead and uh, their cephalic vein at their wrist is not of size. So you have to do a brachiocephalic fistula in the arm. Uh, you create a nice fistula. You're real pleased with your result. You get to the PACU and the patient wakes up and they've got terrible pain in their forearm and hand. What do you think is going on? 
so this is the um, syndrome that's like I am in. Um, essentially, a severe steel syndrome um, requires uh, take back to the operating room to take down the uh, graft because their hand is at risk. That's right. It's real disappointing. Uh, they think that this is steel to the nerves specifically, but they can develop a Volkmann's contracture if uh, left like this, and also they'll be quite unhappy. So let's say a different story. They they come out of the OR and they've got a little tingling in their hand, but nothing that's that bad. But six weeks later, they start dialysis, and now they're having a lot of cramping in their hand when they're on dialysis. What do you think is going on? Uh, this is a concern for true steel syndrome, uh, that they're having arterial um, inadequacy to their hand. Um, and so you can compress the uh, fistula to see if that improves their symptoms. Um, and if it does, that can kind of confirm your suspicion of steel syndrome. And then um, if you do have steel syndrome, sometimes they do need to get uh, their fistula ligated, but um, you can first attempt to improve arterial inflow with endovascular methods of uh, balloon dilation of the artery and improve inflow. That's right. And is there a surgical procedure that you can do in these patients? Yeah, you can uh, do, uh, there's a few fancy ways of revascularizing the hand. Uh, so drill procedure is one of them, distal revascularization with interval ligation. There's a few other kind of um, where they can, you can actually stenose the outflow of that way more ha- uh, blood goes to the hand and not to the fistula and hopefully improve the steel syndrome. So you, that's the, the main thought of all these is too much blood is going into the fistula and too little blood is going to the hand. So all the procedures are attempting to redirect the blood flow down to the hand. That's right. The venous circuit is of lower resistance than the arterial circuit. Uh, have you ever heard of the rule of sixes as in how to ensure that the fistula is ready for prime time? Yeah. So uh, you want it to be within six millimeters of the skin. Um, you want flows of 600 uh, centimeters per second. Uh, you want it at least uh, dilated um, up to six millimeters the actual fistula itself and i'm sure there's some others or is that all just three usually six weeks post six weeks post we and that should cover uh dialysis access questions quickly we just wanted to cover uh venous insufficiency um this is a you know generally the issue is a medial malleolus ulcer in a patient uh a lot of times we'll have edema um and they'll maybe have some evidence of veins. Uh, their foot will have lots of small blue veins throughout it. And this kind of gives you a clue that it's likely venous insufficiency. So for these patients, uh, the mainstay of treatment, if they ask you on the test, is compression therapy to um, help uh, reduce the venous insufficiency. And then you can evaluate them with a duplex ultrasound um, and see if they have a saphenous vein uh, reflux, because if they do, they could be a candidate for an ablation of their va- their saphenous vein, which would improve their venous insufficiency, as long as they have adequate deep venous uh, return and no DVTs. So that's just a, a quick point to uh, remember. Yeah, and the, the way I've seen that pop up a lot of times is this is this is uh, very amenable to a picture question. So if if everybody out there hasn't seen you know what venous stasis ulcers looks like or you, you haven't treated a lot of it, just Google it because chances are the first Google image that you see is going to be the one that's on the test. Um, so uh, look at that image and and just know the treatment for that. Okay, now we're going to do some quick hitters on uh, the common weird vasculitis type diseases that um, we see from step one, step two, all the way to abscite, and it'll never leave us alone. So, um, Jason, you have a young 
uh, male smoker that has uh, ischemia to his fingers. Uh, what are you concerned about, and how do you treat it, and what do you see on angiogram? Uh, so this is a Berger's disease. So again, this is classical young smokers. They get uh, necrosis of their fingers. Uh, the treatment for it is that they need to stop smoking, absolutely. Um, and what you'll see on angiogram is you'll see these uh, little corkscrew uh, collaterals. Are they allowed to dip? I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, only, vape only. only vaping. Okay, vaping only for burgers. That's from Dr. Bingham. Uh, so, John, uh, how about the um, female who has uh, renal artery hypertension and she has kind of beaded vessels? Um, it can be both in the renal arteries and in the carotid arteries. What is this called and how do you treat it? Uh, so I, this is a phylomuscular dysplasia, uh, and you usually treat this with, uh, with angioplasty in these patients, most commonly in the renal arteries. And then the last two things we just wanted to cover are uh, Marfan's disease. Um, the question you got to know, just hopefully you remember this back in the day, but it's a... <clears throat> A defect in the fibrillin gene um, and you'll a lot of times these patients as far as vascular disease will go they'll have aortic root dilatation and we'll need the CT surgeons to replace the aortic root and then for Ehlers-Danlos um, they, they're at risk for dissections um, and aneurysms and it's generally a it can be multiple different collagen defects there's at least 10 types that have been identified so just know that it's a an overall collagen defect and that they have dissections and aneurysms, whereas Marfan's is fibrillin defect. And then you'll be able to get those answers right. Uh, the two other ones that you might commonly see on the app site is Kawasaki uh, disease, which is a febrile illness in children. Uh, you get an aneurysm, the coronary arteries, uh, and then temporal arteritis. And this is most commonly found in women who get headaches and fevers. Uh, and then we'll also present with blurred vision and then they also have a uh, giant cell arteritis upon biopsy uh, and you usually treat this with steroids. Yeah, steroids. So this past year I've been sent 13 patients for temporal artery biopsy and zero have come back positive. Well, uh, that wraps up our kind of highlights of vascular surgery on the ab site. And uh, we really appreciate uh, Dr. Nathan Aronson for joining us today down in Tacoma to help us cover this topic, a broad topic. And there's obviously much more you need to study than what we told you. And I recommend just knocking out the question banks and really seeing the questions on your own. I think that'll be the, the best bang for your buck. But hopefully this uh, will get you a little closer to there on your drive into work or something. Um, so thanks, Nate, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.